Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 167 of Chat with Traders podcast, featuring Bobby Cho. So Bobby first appeared on the podcast in August last year. Some of you may recall that episode. He's the global head of trading at Cumberland, which is the crypto arm of Chicago trading firm DRW, and it's one of the largest liquidity providers in the crypto space. I thought it would be fitting to check in with Bobby again because of the events which have unfolded in cryptocurrency markets over the past 12 months. So our chat actually begins with some of the highlights from the recent Cumberland Summit, which was an industry event for insiders. Then we discuss Cumberland's international expansion, and from there we get into Bitcoin's sudden rise and decline from 20k, whether or not crypto markets have matured, decentralized exchanges, crypto's value and use cases, institutional involvement, and the bigger picture as we move forward. If I happen to miss any topics that some of you diehard crypto fanatics did want to hear about, sorry, please don't be too mad. I would suggest, though, going back to episode 139, our first podcast, because we spoke about other topics then. Anyway, without any further delay, let's get into it. Here is my second conversation with the man, Bobby Cho. I mean, I was looking, we might as well just get started now, I guess. I mean, I was looking at when we actually did the interview last time and it was August last year, I believe, is when we actually spoke and recorded it. I think it came out a little bit later, but I was looking back at the price of Bitcoin then. It was (laughs) (laughs) $4,000. So there's certainly been a lot happening since uh, so we've got a lot to get into, but before that, um, I just wanted to ask you a, a little bit about the Cumberland Summit. Uh, I saw some uh, photos that you were posting on Twitter. Uh, it looked like a bit of fun. How was that? Yeah, it was great. So obviously, we we have a number of counterparties, you know, all over the globe, and along with counterparties, we have a number of service providers that that we deal with, you know, exchanges and infrastructure players as well. And so we said, well man, why don't we put on an event where our, you know, let's call it our network is able to 
network with one another, right? And and really the genesis of it came about where we saw what some of the larger firms were doing with their, you know, either their customer base or the client base or counterparty base, such as like the, you know, the Salesforce Dream Summit or things like that. And so we just basically said, hey, let's open up um, uh, uh, kind of our, our, our network to, to themselves so that they can build synergies and really see that, you know, what we're trying to do here is trying to grow the industry. And, and it was not open any media. I think people had um, people really enjoyed kind of the conversations that, that, that happened there. Yeah. And was that in Singapore or was that in China? Uh, sorry, uh, in uh, Chicago? No, that, that was Singapore. Yeah. So yeah, okay. I think part of it was um, uh, we tried to couple it in because it's not very easy to get to Singapore. Um, well, for you, it is. Uh, for, for most people <laughs> on this side, it's not that easy. And so we said, well, let's couple this with um, some of the conferences and events that were happening in Singapore. And so um, we were we were very surprised at the one, the RSVP rate of people coming. Um, we had thought, you know, hey, you know, it's a big ask. But, um, but I think when a few pieces came together, I think everybody felt like it'd be a worthwhile time. Yeah, it certainly looked as though you had the the kind of the who's who of the crypto world there. I noticed um, the the Winklevoss twins, um, the, the Binance guy was there, and obviously many others. So, yeah, no, that's very cool, man. What was the general sentiment like in the room, like, general sentiment on the actual crypto space and, and where we're headed from here? You know, since everybody's so tied into the crypto space there, you know, obviously people are very um, uh, bullish on the outlook of the industry as a whole. Um, we had people from both kind of the crypto asset side along with the blockchain technology side. And so it was good to kind of get both those feelings. And it seems like on the blockchain technology side that it, it seems like products are now being delivered and, and being tested against, which is which is nice. Um, on the crypto side, you know, everybody acknowledges that we are in um, a different environment than, than we were in Q4, Q1 this year. Um, but at the same time, I think, and I'll go into this kind of in my chat, is that it, it helped a lot of these companies uh, build infrastructure around what they were doing. Because I think if the pace at which the industry was evolving or prices were the way they were in Q4, Q1, it would have been much, much harder for those companies to build kind of scalable solutions for their for the customers. So when you're saying companies here, like what sort of companies are you referring to? Um, so so the demographic of the people that were there were obviously, you named it, right? Exchange operators. Um, you, you had funds, which, you know, are, are, are typical counterparties. You had different protocols, or um, I guess you can loosely call them, you know, um, uh, crypto projects that we wanted to bring together with investors. Okay. And as you had, you know, such a, a great group of people in that room all together, I mean, what were some of the highlights of that for you? Was there anything which was said which was kind of surprising for you or, or shocking in some ways? Like, uh, was there any sort of notable topics that were discussed? Um. Not, I mean, it, it was basically, we had created an agenda for people, but at the same time, you know, uh, there wasn't anything, you know, let's say recorded or anything like that. Um, but it was kind of everything that was going on in the industry at the time. Um, you know, one of the things that we have mentioned was like, you know, some of the panels and topics were like mining versus staking and just kind of the, the relevant things that were happening um, in the industry. And, and also, you know, we, it was kind of like a fine balance of basically, hey, well, we want people to be feel like they're in an open environment and that they can be transparent with this 
uh, with this network, and and we obviously want to to respect that privacy aspect of it as well. Okay, and and maybe similar sort of question phrased a little differently. Was there anything which which kind of got you excited? Was there any talk about upcoming developments in the space? It wasn't discussed there, I'll say, but but, but what we did see was. You know, you think that the crypto industry is, you know, fairly small and uh, compared to other asset classes. And then I agree to agree with that. But it was really interesting to see the dialogues and the connections that were happening between different companies from Asia versus the U.S. gathering um, information, just how things are being done in different parts of the world. And I think getting that cohesion amongst the, the network was was something that that for me, that's probably the greatest output that we could have gotten from that event. Mm. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. So are you guys doing this each year or what's the deal? I think that's that's the um, uh, idea, but we, we haven't put anything down on paper yet. But um, the hope is that we'll, we'll kind of see how the year develops and, and, um, and, and maybe that will become part of it. Okay. So you said that was in uh, Singapore. And I, I'm pretty sure you guys have opened an office in Singapore since we last spoke. Is, is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right. So um, I want to say it was right around October or November of last year um, that we had officially opened Cumberland in Singapore. And that, that was kind of a, a good natural step for us, uh, mainly because uh, DRW already had a presence there. And so infrastructure is already set up and, and things like that. Uh, okay. And do you have an office uh, anywhere else besides Chicago and Singapore for Cumberland? So, um, yeah, we, we are, we do have different locations um, all around the globe, which kind of helps one uh, do our business 24 seven, which I'll, I'll go into in a little bit. Um, but so we're headquartered here in Chicago. We have offices in London and, and Singapore. And about three months ago, we launched our Tokyo office. Uh, and then um, uh, more recently, we launched Seoul, South Korea. Our Japan and Korea office are more of uh, in a discovery mode, mode, if anything, and just trying to figure out kind of the lay of the land, what's going on there, and uh, and how we could um, you know build a business there. So where are you spending most of your time now? It it, it is in Chicago. Um, you know uh, everything that I do kind of internally, although I do manage the trading desk and kind of our operations folks and, and the broader business, um, you know, my main focus is just making sure that, that uh, the company as a whole is operating efficiently and, and to the caliber that, that we hold ourselves to. Right. And what's the idea of having all these various offices in different locations around the globe? Sure. That's a good question. Um, so I'll, I'll just say that Singapore and London were kind of natural hubs of whether you want to call it financial activity or, you know, crypto asset activity. Um, that was just natural to us. And that helps us provide markets to our counterparties on a 24-7 basis, right? Because, um, you know, when Chicago leaves for the day, Singapore gets into the office and, you know, London then gets in and then we pick up the book from London. The reason why Tokyo and Seoul we're looking into uh, were mainly because of some of the juri- specific jurisdictional, you know, regulatory environments that crypto lives in, in in those regions. And so it we realized very quickly that it was hard as, um, you know, a company that's not boots on the ground there to, to get involved in and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Okay. And so were you not always a 24-7 operation? Uh, that's correct. So uh, I think it was in Q1 of this year that we had launched 24-7 operations. And that means everything from providing markets, quoting, um, settlement, and uh, everything kind of comes along with that. 
um, that's when we had built out that infrastructure in Q1. And, and a lot of the things that we do at Cumberland are driven by our counterparty feedback. What we had noticed was that people wanted to trade with us. Um, well, one, it was a symptom of the underlying market being you know, uh, 24-7. But we realized our counterparty base was also wanting to trade 24-7. So we said, how can we get this going in, in a manner that we felt comfortable with in terms of you know, risk management and, and trading? And so uh, we got that up in, in Q1. I guess I should probably uh, ask you just to, uh, real quick, just to explain actually what Cumberland is, because I'm, I'm sure there's people who are going to be listening to this uh, podcast who haven't heard uh, our last conversation. Uh, and if they haven't, they should go back and listen to it. That was episode <laughs> 139. But just so the rest of this, uh, you know, our conversation here makes sense to everyone, can you just give us a real quick recap on on Cumberland and, and what you actually do there? Sure. So Cumberland is the crypto trading arm of DRW. Uh, DRW is about a 900-person principal trading firm across multiple asset classes. Uh, Cumberland is no different. We we um, are one of the largest principal liquidity providers in the crypto space, where we make two-sided markets for different institutions, whether you're a fund or or um, or a different entity out there that's looking to get access or liquidity in, in the crypto asset space. Okay, so like you just said there, your, your customer base is mainly institutions um, and sorry, I forgot the, the other title you gave there. But Oh, I just said, I just said entities broadly. Um, but so it's not, uh, not our customer base per se. Um, uh, it's more we deal with counterparties. Right. So uh, DRW as a whole, um, we have no investors, no shareholders, no customers. Um, it's, uh, everything is on a principal basis. Yeah. Have you noticed that the – the sort of the people who are coming to you, who you're dealing with, are different. Um, it, it's sort of changed over the past year or so. I think so. Um, I think what we saw, especially when we launched Asia, in terms of well, the number of funds, crypto-specific funds, um, I think it's upwards of about 300 now, and that you know uh, evolution really came about. You know, I, I want to say the last time that we had chatted last August. Um, that's when, you know, I think there was a lot of interest pouring into the space, obviously as the price started to ramp up from, you know, the August pricing that you mentioned at 4,000 and, you know, hitting the peak kind of in December and January, people started to, uh, create their own funds and, and fundraise. And so funds are definitely a, a profile of counterparties that, that we, that we make markets for on, on a daily basis. Um, but aside from that, we'll, you know, we deal with a number of high net worth individuals or family offices, um, you know, uh, uh, and a number of traditional funds that have kind of carved out things on the GP side of things to, to trade the asset class. Can you just uh, dumb this down a little bit further? Um, so when you're talking about uh, making markets for your counterparties, you're talking about making markets in like an OTC type of way? That's correct. So traditionally, we we had done um, uh, you know transactions or quoting or making markets um, to our counterparties via voice or by chat. Um, so that was typically done over some sort of communication portal, and and that's how we did it. And and as I mentioned before, in terms of we we really value the feedback that our, our counterparties give us because that that helps us get better. And so two of the developments um, that, that we really started to dig into this year um, was the idea of how people could interact with us in a non-voice, non-chat way. 
And so we looked at how other traditional markets were doing it or how they've evolved. And so we concluded on two things, um, two which, uh, you know, we're really excited about um, in terms of uh, presenting them to our counterparties. But one, it's, it's an API that people are going to be able to see our pricing. Uh, whether it's on a streaming basis or something like that. And the other thing is um, uh, a platform base, or we call it a, a single DR platform, where people are now able to, to log in and view all of our markets um, in a more visual standpoint than the API would. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, again, it's 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 all driven by just what our counterparts are looking for, and we really take that to heart because, again, that that helps us get better. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a much more efficient way to do it, I'd imagine. It's kind of just like uh, there's kind of a method for for an array of different counterparties now. And I think it actually helps open up um, uh, the way that people interact with us um, much more wider than, than be before. And why are these counterparties dealing with you specifically or, you know, other desks who do things similar to what you do uh, instead of just uh, interacting with the actual you know, various exchanges? Sure. So there's kind of like a, um, uh, there is a trust factor involved with, uh, with that. And then there's also an efficiency standpoint with it. And I'll go into both. So on the trust side of things, obviously, DRW has been around for greater than 25 years. Um, so we leverage a lot of what DRW has done over the past few decades into what we do on a day-in, day-out basis. And so in terms of being able to manage risk, in terms of being able to, to, to provide the markets that we do and, and the spreads that we do, um, we wouldn't be able to do it with the, without the infrastructure of the broader organization. And so I think people um, people come to respect that and, and they like that feature. And, um, and obviously balance sheet plays a factor into it as well. Um, and then the second part is, you know, in terms of exchanges, we work with a number of exchanges, um, but but we are uh, a risk-taking entity. And so what I mean by that is that we can provide, um, I think, a greater level of liquidity for, for certain coins that are out there um, than, than possibly other, other exchanges. Um, one of the main features of efficiency that, that we like um, dealing with uh, on the OTC side of things are institutions are very mindful of whether it's internal cost of capital or their return on their capital. And so when we trade, it's on a bilateral basis and settlement ha happens after execution. So we don't hold anything in advance of any transaction. Uh, whereas in exchange, you need to hold the funds there for the time that comes that you actually want to do a transaction. Well, that tends to not be an efficient way to manage your capital. And so, you know, just the way that we, we trade and settle, it, it tends to be a little bit more efficient for, for certain funds out there because of whether it's size or, or just capital efficiency. And what markets are you dealing in now? I know, oh, sorry, not what markets, what, um, what products? I know, obviously, Bitcoin, uh, but yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I believe you've, you've kind of expanded the products that you're dealing in as well, the different coins and that sort of thing since we last spoke as well. You're yeah, that's right. So we trade upwards of about 35 different cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, most of the, the, the top, you know, uh, uh, coins by market cap. Um, and, you know, other ERC-20 tokens as well. Um, and then along with that, we also trade, you know, whether it's cash settled or physically settled futures as well. So it's not just the number of coins uh, has expanded, but kind of also the product set at which crypto assets um, are traded in. 
Yeah. What, how do you feel about the the introduction of Bitcoin futures? Like, is that something which was welcomed by you guys? I think so. We we were there day one um, on the CME and the in the SIBO launch. We've seen those markets continue to grow over time. I think you're seeing kind of more volume going into the CME market. Uh, I think mainly because of its its uh, its access and reach to uh, uh, to the broader kind of futures market. Um, but I think I think it gave an opportunity for those that wanted to participate in the market in terms of whether speculating on price or putting on a position uh, without actually having to hold the underlying or deal with kind of that side of, of, of the trade. And so I think it's all, it's all net positive. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think, um, you know, there, there are more and more infrastructure providers out there that are building products that, um, that, that may be better in the future, but that's kind of where we are today. I guess we should, uh, we should get into um, talking about the big run up towards the end of last year. Like I said earlier, um, Bitcoin was around about $4,000 when we last spoke, uh, August 2017. How was the run up to 20000 Like, What was that like for you to be trading and making markets during that time? Uh, you know, uh, along with working in um, an environment where kind of the, uh, the land around you continues to shift, um, whether it's because of different uh, movements that are happening on the regulation side of things or infrastructure side of things, you know, then you then you add on um, kind of the, the volatility of the market. Um, and so I'll just say every day was was an adventure for us. Um, we got a lot smarter at what we're doing. It helped um, uh, make us realize um, how we can scale better as a business and and also just how we can manage risk better as well. And so I think um, obviously those were very volatile very adventurous times. Um, and so I, I think we're in a much more sustainable kind of um, pattern in the industry right now. As a market maker, that type of environment, is that is that a good thing for you or is that um, <laughs> put you to the test a little bit? I, I definitely think it, it puts you to the test. I think it, it, it tests your, your ability to manage risk. It tests your ability to provide markets and be accurate on everything that you're doing. Um, I mean, you know, prices were all over the place. Um, it makes you become super efficient on how you're managing your coins and cash, making sure you're getting, you know, the return that you'd like on every single dollar that's on exchange or every single dollar that's out the door or every single coin that you're trading. It makes you be much more mindful about every part of your business because things are happening so quickly and you need to have a pulse on everything that's going on. Um, and, and, it, and, and it definitely, it definitely stress tests, uh, things, uh, your own operations internally. Was there a point during all of this where it sort of clicked that this was all becoming very bubble like? I think very early on, we, we said that the, the markets had, um, bubble like characteristics. Um, and so, I think the the broader audience or the community recognized that this was not the velocity with the was not sustainable, um, and so really when you started to see prices kind of come off in you know in later Q1 and and in the subsequent months, you know I, I think that actually um, gave the industry an opportunity to take everything that they had learned from the previous quarters. Um, in terms of, you know, stress testing their operations, things like that, and we're no different, um, and gave them opportunity to actually build scalable solutions for the marketplace. Um, and that's where you're seeing a number of different uh, infrastructure pro providers come out, um, whether they're new entrants or, or uh, 
older entrants, whether they're you know building out their current offerings or offering new things. So I think that that really helped uh, the industry figure out kind of where they were at and and how things could end up going um, uh, down the line. And when you sort of sense that you know we were entering a bubble or this was becoming uh, very bubble-like. Was there anything which you had to do to kind of prepare for the backside of this move? It's a good question. I would say that, you know, we, we try to approach every single opportunity by just looking at the broader picture, not just kind of living in the moment. And so you obviously have to, from a risk management standpoint, understand that things don't always go up and to the right forever. And so you have to understand that, well, you need to be mindful of all your open settlements. You need to be mindful of all the transactions that you're doing. And so um, so I'll just say that, you know, we, we kind of uh, anticipated that, um, you know, pricing could correct. And I think I think any any trader out there would have recognized that as well. It was just, you know, when was that going to happen? Was that going to happen at 20,000 or is that going to happen at, at 40,000? Mm. <laughs> and what about when it did? you know, turn around uh, on the flip side. How was the decline for you? I mean, was that, I presume that was probably interesting times as well. Um, did that have any greater impact on your business as opposed to when it was ramping up? No, I don't think so. I think if anything, um, you know, what well, we we are in the market every single day providing two-sided, um, two-sided quotes. So whether the market is going up or whether the market is going down, we are going to step in and provide you a quote or quotes. Um, and so there, it was kind of no different. It was just the reverse, basically. Um, and so even even today, where you see kind of pricing trading in a fairly tight range over the last few months, um, you know, we're we're still being very very active um, and aggressive out there. This whole thing where you know Bitcoin's gone from well, depends how far back you want to go, but let's just talk about. <laughs> Let's just talk about from, um, you know, August last year, it was $4,000. Everyone thought it was really high then. Uh, or I shouldn't say everyone. There were many people who were who were saying that. Uh, we saw it go all the way up to 20000 and it's come back and it's sort of flown just above that $6,000 mark for a while now. For someone like yourself who's been active in the crypto market since I think it was around about 2012, you might have been earlier that you are yeah, um, right around 13 i'd say right around 13 okay yeah. so you've been doing this for a while are there some things you've learned or some things which have been confirmed over and over for you about you know how markets work how markets move and, and how market participants think i would just say probably the the biggest takeaway uh that i try to instill kind of everybody on the desk uh everybody that works for cumberland is is in this market, especially because it's still growing and it's still very new and the infrastructure is still being built out and still very early, never assume anything. Um, always do the work. Um, that comes down to, you know, uh, you know the, the addresses that you're sending coins to um, in terms of double checking that. Um, I mean, just never assume anything in this market and, and make sure to validate kind of everything that you're doing um, over and over again. And, and I, I try to kind of beat that into the, the team every day just because things just change and, um, and you just have to adapt to, to what's happening around you. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. 
not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And what do you make of the fact that Bitcoin's kind of fluctuating around the $6,000 mark? Like it seems to have almost found a little bit of support there. Is there anything which you read into from that? Not too much. I, I look at kind of like the broader picture of what that provides to the marketplace. And I'll just go back to the fact that it allows people to kind of go back and focus on building scalable products and solutions for the marketplace. And um, and, and granted, we are kind of in this low vol, low volume environment. Um, but, you know, that really provides an opportunity for companies to reassess what they're doing. And, and to some degree, you know there is there is a, a level of consolidation that's been happening in this in this uh, in this environment in this market, and so that makes one it makes uh, business plans of a lot of these companies have to be much more bulletproof than they were you know in the run up of Q4 last year, right? I think even whether it's an ICO or a different protocol that's out there, I mean, I mean people have gotten smarter over the past year. They know the right questions to ask. So you better believe that the economics be behind your token offering, the, the economics behind uh, the token that you're launching needs to be much more soundproof um, because people have seen the boom and kind of, you know, if you want to call it the bust of a lot of these projects. Yeah. Would you say also the how volatility has uh, decreased over the last sort of little while that it's possibly a sign that the market has matured a little bit as well? Yes, I think I think that that can be a safe assumption, along with the other products that have been um, uh, uh, launched out there in terms of futures and, and other products like that, allowing people to participate um, on both sides of of um, of their perspective. Yeah, and, and what about the altcoin space? How has that been affected by all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're seeing it in in the numbers. A few months ago, I kind of looked at uh, one of the articles and said that you know, 60% of all ICOs have uh, have kind of um, uh, have gone away, and 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 they're not they're not relevant anymore. And so, again, going back to the whole you know, sound business models, they need to be tougher today than they were a year ago. Um, you know, I think you know the altcoin market volumes have definitely dried up. Things have become very very uh, illiquid, even more illiquid than, than some of the other cryptos out there. Um, and, and there's been sort of this, whether you want to call it like flight to quality or flight to safety, but um, it, it's kind of gone, gone back to Bitcoin a little bit. The interesting dynamic kind of that we've seen out of Asia is that, um, you know, more than 10% uh, of the transactions that we do during Asia hours are actually um, Ethereum based. 
more so than the U.S. hours. And so that was an interesting dynamic for us, mainly because it gave us an idea of kind of what our Asian uh the folks that are trading with us in Asia are are doing and, and transacting in and, and excited about and involved with. Now, I guess just taking a little step back, you know, that, that run up to 20,000, I don't know, maybe you can share your thoughts on this, but I think, you know, if we were just to make a general assumption, it was, it was a lot of it was driven or fueled by people thinking that Bitcoin and some of the other coins could possibly become widely accepted as a possibly a form of currency. You know, is it safe to say that the majority of people no longer believe that this is still the case? I actually want to say that the run up in Q4 and Q1 or kind of the broader tail end of last year um, was was driven mostly by retail. And I think most would would agree with that. And I think you actually saw a number of places, uh, you know, different jurisdictions, different regions where being able to trade crypto became more accessible. And so that's why you had you know, premiums on various different um, uh, exchanges that were maybe servicing, you know, people in Japan or servicing people in Korea or in India or different places like that. So you you basically had pockets of retail um, investors and traders that now were accessing a market that kind of, um, you know, they were able to kind of play off of the market side of things, but also there's this technology aspect to a lot of these coins that, that they can express their views on. Um, and so I think I think that was kind of a big catalyst to the run up. Um, I still think the whole uh, use case aspect of whether it's Bitcoin or other um, crypto technologies out there, it, it still lives today and still being built on and iterated on. But I think a lot of that was kind of trumped by just the, the price action that you saw day to day. Yeah, but I mean, why was retail buying this up? I mean, what what was their motivation for buying into this? Was it just to try and get try and get rich, try and get a Lamborghini? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I don't know the exact answer, but I can look back at history a little bit in terms of uh, you know brief history. You know, the run up for Bitcoin going into you know let's call it a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred a few years back. I mean, a lot of that was driven by China. Well, why was that driven by China? Well, it's because it gave them an outlet to um, uh, earn access for, for, for loosening capital controls. And so people realized that there was this vehicle or this asset that they can get into and they can then go ahead and, and send funds all around the world however they'd like. And so I would actually look at the regions during the run up of Q4 that they had very similar profiles of just um, capital controls in place. And, and how, how they were able to access those markets uh, that they couldn't before. Yeah, okay. So I guess, you know, if we go into this a little more, what I'm sort of trying to get at here is where's the value in Bitcoin? Like, where do you see the value in it now? You know, I know a lot of people are asking this. I, I posted in the, the chat with Traders Facebook group and mentioned that I was going to be having you back on and this question sort of came up a few times. You know, what is the real purpose is a lot of, there's a question that a lot of people are asking, like, what purpose does crypto serve beyond just speculation? Sure. Um, so I think I think the bottom line um, to level set everything is that it's still very early on. And so what you have are you have a number of entrepreneurs, whether it's in Bitcoin or other 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 crypto assets or even new tokens. Everybody in that in that uh, in that space is still trying to figure out the killer app or the killer use case for cryptocurrencies. So, so that's where we're at today. 
But when I look at kind of whether it's like, you know, you want to put a valuation on Bitcoin or anything like that, you know, if you were really to, to take a poll at, and all around the world and say, well, what, what's what's Bitcoin good for? You are going to get an array of different answers out there, mainly because it's going to mean something different to different people. And what I mean by that is so uh, 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 just by our counterparty base in general, you know, people look at Bitcoin as almost a store of value, right? Especially with pricing being where it is, right? So gold 2.0. Well, the critics of that use case said, well, Bitcoin's too volatile. It can't be a store of value. Well, now Bitcoin isn't as volatile. So maybe people are considering that it could be a store of value. Um, you know, uh, that's that's one way people can look at it. Other people look at it as a way of payment. Um, and, and we deal with corporates um, every single day that use Bitcoin um, for their service, uh, where they get paid in Bitcoin because it's quicker, faster, easier than traditional channels. So that's another use case. Um, and so people are interacting with, you know, I'll just say Bitcoin directly um, in, in, in different ways than, than the next person. And so I think that's where kind of the, uh, the difference comes about in terms of how people are looking at the space, because they know the world that they grew up in and the, the, the rules and regulations that they, they live within. And that's how they're going to view Bitcoin uh, versus somebody who may have grown up in a very capital controlled environment um, and, and where kind of governments can control a lot of the aspects of what they're doing. And they may look at Bitcoin very, very differently than than the other person. So uh, hopefully that that helps kind of round out the view of why there are so many different views on on the price of Bitcoin and what it's worth and what people are using it for. The bottom line is people are using it for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so I think I think that's also one of the fascinating parts about it. One of those reasons you sort of briefly touched on earlier was the the technology aspect of it. Being as involved in the space as you are, have you seen any notable applications of blockchain being used in in the real world? I think people are still, um, well, there's this whole concept of like private blockchains versus public blockchains. But I think um, on like the private blockchain side, I mean, that's that's kind of going full full steam ahead. There are a lot of enterprise companies out there that are building products for a number of institutions out there, whether it's on, you know, the, uh, the financial services side or, or anything like that. Um, and on the on the crypto asset side, where, where you actually have a native token traveling within these blockchains, um, that's still being built out. Um, obviously, Bitcoin is is the most inherent one that everybody knows about. Um, but I still think people are very very excited about what this can do, right? Because the way I look at it is, you know, there's this public ledger that gets reconciled every ten minutes. Just talking about Bitcoin. Um, I mean, just the sheer possible applications of that you're seeing play out in the market where you have entrepreneurs trying to build and, and you know, who knows if, if it's the right business model or not, but they're trying to build, you know, uh, medical records on top of Bitcoin. They're trying to build, you know, uh, real estate transactions on top of blockchain technologies. They're trying to figure out ways that they can leverage this technology. And again, it's still early days where people are kind of throwing things against the wall and trying to figure out what sticks, because I think they realize that if they're able to leverage a different market along with crypto, that that could be kind of the killer use case that, that people see out there. But I actually don't see it as one killer use case to trump them all. It's I think there's going to be a number of different applications and ways that people interact with it. And and maybe in the future, people aren't even going to know that they're interacting with it uh, and they're just going to be using it. Just to pick on one of the examples you gave there, I think it was health records being stored on a sort of a blockchain. I mean, what would be the, the benefits of that? 
you know, I, I don't work directly in that field, but I would just say that, you know, I think it's this idea that you have um, a ledger that's timestamped, that's immutable, that is also global in distribution and then decentralized. So I think all of those attributes kind of help not just medical industry, but but any industry that has differing sets of information at different times. Um, and it kind of level sets all of that um, onto an even playing field for everybody involved. All right. So let's talk a little bit about some of the trading opportunities. Um, you know, last time I remember we spoke a bit about arbing the various price discrepancies between various exchanges. And you sort of spoke about how it's a bit more difficult than what most people um, think it is on the surface. Where do you see possible opportunity for your average kind of independent self-backed trader? You know, I'm talking about things which aren't necessarily worthwhile for a bigger player like Cumberland, but might be worthwhile for smaller participants to sort of look into. Like, is there anything which you think is interesting, worthwhile investigating? Um, I, I'd say definitely on kind of the major exchanges or major coins out there that the opportunity is, 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 is not there. You, you've had a number of entrants into the market where spreads have come in and markets have tightened and any opportunities that may have presented themselves years prior, um, you know, they are kind of getting uh, taken up and the space is getting a little bit more crowded there. Um, but in terms of, I guess, other opportunities that maybe you know, other other people can be looking at. You know, I think uh, one of the interesting things and developments of this year is the idea of like decentralized exchanges. Um, although we don't participate on any of the decentralized exchanges, um, I can see that being an interesting uh, arbitrage opportunity for different folks who, who can. Granted, those markets are mainly focused on retail size transactions. Um, and, and they have their own nuances, but, you know, that's definitely an interesting development as more and more of these decentralized exchanges kind of come about. So what is a, a decentralized exchange? Uh, a decentralized exchange is be almost just like a peer-to-peer a -peer exchange where people are trading with uh, one another um, on kind of a, a singular network that allows them to kind of uh, um, tra transfer and trade um, different crypto assets for one another. And are these decentralized exchanges, are these just a recent development? Um, I, I'd say so, probably in the last uh, year or two. Uh, but more so today as as more people started to um, figure out kind of uh, the interestingness of, about it. Okay. And do you think this is possibly a way that, uh, you know, these sorts of exchanges are going to – overpower is probably not the right word um, – but do you think this is sort of something that might catch on and sort of be a serious competition for the other exchanges that are already um, sort of running the game? You know, I think that there are the ideas very fascinating. Um, but as we've seen it play out over the last few years in terms of, well, you know, Bitcoin adoption or Ethereum adoption or things like that, it's it's always going to be slower than what, what you think is going to actually happen. And so I think it's probably too far to tell exactly how these are going to impact um, the way that traditional exchanges work. But I'll just say that the idea is out there now that someone has built this thing or built mo multiple things. Um, and this idea of decentralized um, clearing, decentralized trading is 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 now an idea out there that that's working in practice. Um, but again, I, I still see it kind of more within the retail circles. Um, I, I don't, at this point, I, I'm not sure if, if there's going to be any institutional involvement just yet. 
So, so how come you mentioned this? Because it's a, a very new thing. You feel like there could be um, some inefficiencies which traders could uh, take advantage of. Is that why you sort of thought to bring that up? No, I just think that it's an interesting development that kind of happened over this year. And, and you know, when you had mentioned just, well, what are the opportunities for other traders that may be out there, you know, in on the, you know, quote unquote, the traditional markets of the, the crypto exchanges? I mean, the arbitrage opportunities are, are few and far between, but um, decentralized exchanges may be, may be something that's, that's more interesting. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. Um, Bobby, you know, obviously I'm not... Uh, I don't follow the crypto market too closely. Uh, I, I do follow it with a little bit of interest um, and a little bit of skin in the game, but I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as um, involved in it as you are, obviously. You know, are there things which you feel as I should be asking you about which I haven't? Are there any topics which you think uh, are worthwhile discussing? Sure. I mean, there's like this. Yeah, and, and, and people brought this up a lot last year. They continue to bring it up this year. It's, you know, when's this institutionalization of crypto going to happen? And, you know, uh, how's it going to play out? Um, I think I think you're actually seeing it kind of play out in, in two ways this year. Um, I think there's been like an infrastructure play that I mentioned before. You know, you have more custodians today than you had last year. You have more venues, traditional venues, um, that have announced that they're going to get involved in the crypto um, asset space. You have the existing crypto exchanges that are trying to bolster their businesses and, and make things better on, on their side. Um, you have a number of aggregator platforms out there that have emerged. Um, and so all of that, to me, shows that the framework is being built, whereas last year that, that framework didn't even exist. Um, and so, so this framework is being built, which I think is helpful for institutions to get more comfortable with the space that's sort of something you hear a little bit like obviously being spoken about is is like you said when are the institutions going to be getting involved and and more heavily involved in the space it seems as though people kind of like the idea that institutions are going to be getting involved in in cryptocurrency markets why do you think people like that idea you know i think it, it provides some level of validation to the market that um, some of the most sophisticated investors um, or investment teams out there have now, you know, whether they want to look at it as like a, a, a stamp or uh, a stamp on the industry or something like that, that provides them some level of comfort that, hey, even these folks are, are now involved in cryptocurrencies that, that, um, that wow, that, that means that, that it's, it's now mainstream. But I'll just say that, you know, I think there has been a misconception over the past few years of, what involvement looks like or adoption looks like. I think a lot of people had speculated, and, and me to a degree as well, that these institutions are going to come to the market and they're basically just going to buy coins and the price is going to kind of run up over time. <laughs> I think I think you've seen it actually play out differently. And, you know, people say, well, the institutions aren't involved. And I'll say, you know, I just don't think they're involved in the way that you're you're looking at it. You know, and I think the Yale announcement was something very, very interesting, right? These these investors and, uh, and institutions are now participating in not just the coin aspect of it, but they're looking at it from a vehicle perspective of different, you know, whether it's a fund um, that's investing in things and, and they're investing in, in hybrid models as well. They're investing in funds that are also investing in coins, but also taking a more VC style approach towards protocols and things like that and, and other infrastructure plays. Bobby, you were recently uh, featured in a, a Financial Times article 
And uh, you said something to the extent of, you know, we're not in this just for a year or two. Uh, we see a bigger picture down the line uh, in regard to cryptocurrency markets. You know, for you, uh, what does that picture look like? I think uh, what I mentioned earlier just about uh, whether it's, uh, or I guess mainly it, it's the the idea that we're going into to new territory, new markets. Um, and and for for me, that's obviously that's, that's a bet that we're doing on, on the industry in terms of helping it grow, helping it adopt and taking our best practices that we've done here in the U.S. to, to, uh, to Asia and then, and then even broader to, you know, to Japan and Korea. And so I think for us, it's, it's bringing kind of a level of sophistication and, and standards that we've seen in other markets that, that are traded at DRW and, and trying to instill those practices into, into still this very growing um, asset class. Very good, man. Very good. Um, all right, we can probably leave it there, I think, unless there's anything else you wanted to um, bring up. Uh, no, I, I think thought this was great, yeah. Okay, cool. So you're on Twitter. Uh, what is your Twitter handle, Bobby? It's uh, Robert J. Cho. Robert, the letter Jersey Cho, yep. Okay, cool. And if someone's interested in learning a little bit more about Cumberland, uh, where's the best place to go? You know, our, our website is probably the best place, www.cumberland.io. Um, and that, that's probably the best information they're going to be able to get. Okay. Very good. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast for the second time. It was really great to um, speak again. Obviously, there's been a bit happening since last time. So, I'm glad we could do this. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, and I'm going to have to check in with on the uh, on the merch store that, that you have, see if you have any, any new stuff going on. I'll send you a tea. I'll send you a tea. <laughs> you can Sounds work around good. the office. <laughs> All Thank right, you. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.